but if you're working with a group of kids, it's better to take a tack that's going to keep more of them there and build relationships across all of the kids rather than to assume that the ones who like can't take it should drop out anyway. This is the Reform Sports Project, a podcast about restoring healthy balance and perspective in all areas of sport through education and advocacy. Hi, this is Nick Bonacore from the Reform Sports Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Julie McCleary, Director of Research Practice Partnerships for the University of Washington Center for Leadership in Athletics. With over 25 years of experience as an educator, researcher, and coach, Dr. McCleary is a longtime advocate for accessible, inclusive children's sports and recreational options. Julie and I discuss why kids who specialize early are more likely to develop anxiety and depression in the long run, the importance of coaches prioritizing psychological safety for their athletes, and why all kids deserve access to high-quality youth sports opportunities. Here we go. I am once again ecstatic. I have another awesome guest. She is a, a familiar voice, a familiar person in my life from the youth sports side. A lot of you may know her work or see her on social media. We spoke, we've spoken several times. We actually recorded an episode way back and I screwed it up. So we're going to do it again, but um, I'm really tickled to have her. She is a professor at the University of Washington, an all-around stud and youth sports advocate, tremendous voice, Dr. Julie McCleary. Doc, thank you so much for hopping on. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to picking up where we left off on our conversation. For sure. And um, so walk us through, I mean, obviously I gave a little bit of a background, you know, we have our intro, but what exactly do you do at the University of Washington? Because I know it's really centered around youth sports and kind of all that. So can you kind of tell us what you're mm-hmm. doing? Sure. Um, right. I work um, with, within the College of Education at a center called the Center for Leadership and Athletics. So I do research on coaching and on youth sports, and then I help translate that research into community-based programs. So whether that's coach training or, um, for example, I help run a coalition that's focused on play equity, you know, making sure kids have access to youth sports. So I, I work on kind of both the practical side and the research side. And I also am um, an instructor in our graduate program, which is focused on both athletic administration and coaching. I love this because of the fact that you do the research. A lot of people, you know, like to have opinions and, you know, we try to get as much information and research out there because it's important to have data backed up because I think we're all passionate about this, which obviously it's an important thing to be passionate about. And we're talking about children. One thing in particular, I know you and I spoke on uh, about a year ago and I'm going to set this up because a lot of people may remember there was a viral video that went around of Trent Dilfer, who's now the head football coach. I think it's at like UAB. He's a college head football coach now. He just got a new job at the time. um, He was a high school head coach at one of the best programs, I believe, in the country. And there was a viral clip of him like getting really, really, really intense you know, with a high school kid, he kind of had him like jacked up by the shoulder pads and, and uh-huh. you know, was in his grill, you know, um, when I say in his grill, yeah. in his face, you know, and being very loud, very, very aggressive. Right. And, you know, a lot of people felt very passionately about that. You and I kind of exchanged personal uh, perspective on that. And I really want to focus in, Dr. McCleary, on the word yelling. You know, I heard someone say this to me when I made a post recently uh, and I use the word yelling, but I kind of prefaced it with like quotations, like, and the person used the term coaching voice. And I was like, you know, that's a really, there is a coaching oh. voice. And I was like, mm-hmm. 
That is so much less aggressive than the word yelling. Can you talk about yelling, why it is maybe not good, or what are your thoughts on it when it comes to coaching in youth sports? Sure. Well, I love that you started just with the definition because, I mean, since you and I have had had that exchange about yelling or aggressive coaching behavior, I've definitely had that exchange with other people on Twitter. And it always devolves into this where some folks are saying, how can you call yelling verbal abuse? You know, that yelling is just part of coaching. And so it sort of lacks a definition of what we're even talking about. So I think that's an important place to start. And like, I think we can both admit we don't mean yelling, like exhorting in a friendly way, like cheering on loudly, right? That's kind of not what we're talking about. We're talking about probably some gray area where there's an intensity, you know, driven by excitement or driven by the moment, but that it could come, it could be perceived as aggressive, right? And that that can often tip over um, from some coaches into what may be allowable to what seems maybe like something that shouldn't be allowed in a youth sports context or even in a in a college sports context. So I, I'd say it's a little bit of one of those, like, you know it when you see it, right? Like a coach is doing something that you're like, mm, I don't know if we should be treating people that way, right? Um, I think that's the best I can do in terms of a, a definition, but I do think it's an important place to start. We're not just talking about like cheering in a loud voice when we're talking about yelling. We're talking about some sort of intense aggressiveness that might be out of place when working with kids. And I think that there's a place where, you know, speaking in a, listen, I have six kids and, you know, there, there are quite often times where the kids don't respond. I feel like, like I could tell my kids a hundred times, all right, it's time right. to turn off the TV, time to turn off the, and they literally don't look at you until it's like, hey, you know, kind of like, I got to get your attention type thing. Is there such thing as, and I guess I'm asking you based off of any research you've done, or is there any such thing as a healthy fear, maybe a healthy fear? Oh. Is that is that even, I don't know, possible? That's a great question. What I would say is like, that's exactly what that is, is that when you are shouting or being intense, you know, in that manner, it's fear-based coaching, right? It's like, I, I, I'm going to yell or I'm going to I'm going to act in this way because I want you to be a little bit afraid and respond, you know, out of fear. And so what you're likely going to get is maybe a short term response, right? Like if you yell at your kids to turn off the TV, probably the TV is going to get turned off. But is it going to get turned off all the next times when you ask nicely? Maybe not. So what we know about this like extrinsic motivation um, like that, especially you know, more of a punitive extrinsic motivation is that it might work in the short term. So it might appear effective, but in the long term, if you keep using it, it actually diminishes in effectiveness and it hinders your relationships. And that's what coaching is ultimately about, right? Is having these the kind of relationships with athletes that you that last over time where you're working together towards an end goal and have trust and respect for one another. And so anything that's eroding that is not, you know, building your team or building your relationships with your athletes um, towards your po the positive end goal that you want over time. You know, it's funny because I, I, I often have heard, and I've interviewed so many people, but like I talked to Chipper Jones and he was like, one of the great things that he learned from different managers, you know, Chipper Jones, Hall of Fame, Major League Baseball player, for those of you who've been on Mars for the last 50 years. Um, he said to me, um, you know, part of being a great coach is knowing and I'm not going to give the exact quote, I may screw it up, but it's knowing, you know, who needs a, a pat on the back and who might need a foot in the rear, but more importantly, knowing when to do both, when's right. the time and place. But like, 
I know for me, from my experience, I responded well to coaches who coached me. There were times during my athletic career when I was definitely more unsure of myself than others. And at those moments where I was maybe lacking some confidence or insecure, the last thing I needed was like a foot in the rear. Like I needed to be an arm around my back. So you talk about building relationships, like, you know, what's the best way to, or what are some ways in which coaches can, you know, know which kids can benefit from maybe a more stern approach or more direct, not saying yelling or aggressive, but I'm saying more stern and direct versus those that, you know, may need, I don't want to use the word coddled because I feel like that's, that's negative too, but it's like, you know, may need a little bit more love, you know, maybe a little bit more like, Hey, it's all right, you know, build them up as opposed to, but some kids really respond really well to, to being like more stern. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to answer that sort of two ways. I mean, first, just to say that like this idea of using yelling as sort of a tactic, I think is an interesting one because I think part of the problem is that it might be the only tactic a coach has. It might be the only tool in their toolbox. Like, and when you only have that one tool, you know, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? So coaches, because maybe they don't have training in like teaching and learning or pedagogy or youth development or some of these other things, they don't necessarily know what else to use. And so they're using this tool that isn't effective in this particular situation. So, you know, for example, I use this example with my students. I was actually just talking with my my son about it. Um, I was playing basketball. This was a while ago. They're doing a shooting competition and his team was just having a lot of trouble. They couldn't make all the baskets in a row. And the coach just kept yelling at them to compete, to try harder. And what he was thinking is, I'm not trying to miss. Like, I'm trying my best. Something's wrong, right? And in that moment, so when when a coach is treating everything like it's a motivational problem, often what, you know, they need to do is take a step back and say, is this a motivational problem? Maybe this is one where they don't actually know how to do this skill, right? Or maybe this is a problem of fatigue. You know, there are all sorts of other problems that it could be. So I think some, t- some of the issues around yelling is just an overuse of it as a tactic when other tactics might be better to get people where you want them to go. Well, and then that didn't like directly answer your question. But I guess the other thing I would say about like, when to use it and and who to use it on is I just think like, you know, at most stages of sports, I think we want to think more about how to keep more kids playing for as long as possible, as opposed to weeding them out early, because, you know, we do have really high rates of attrition for kids from youth sports around 12, 13, 14. So we want all kids to have these great benefits from sports. Like, we know that you're going to catch more kids if you don't use the aggressive tactics, right? Like, maybe there's one or two who are going to put up with it. And, and often we end up with this kind of bias that so those who outlast, right, the, those who can put up with it, stay in sport for longer. And then they're like, see, it worked for me. The yelling's fine. But what about, you know, those, <laughs> those other 10 kids that dropped out of that same program? We don't get to hear from them because they didn't make it. So I guess I would just say, like, Yes, maybe when you really get to know a kid and, and you can you can be tougher on them. And, but if you're working with a group of kids, it's better to take a tack that's going to keep more of them there and build relationships across all of the kids rather than to assume that the ones who like can't take it should drop out anyway. 
That's a great point. And you brought up a few things there. And, and I think most importantly, it is when I brought up the Trent Dilfer, I mentioned, obviously, it was a high school football game. And there's a massive, massive difference between coaching a high school kid versus coaching a seven, eight, nine, ten year old. I mean, really, anything under high school is there's just a massive difference. Yeah. Um, so age appropriateness is, is first and foremost. And you make a great point, though. I mean, like, you know, you talk about attrition and, and, and kids aging out of sport or, or, you know, there is a you know huge turnover. And that's a whole different topic I'd love to get into here shortly as far as like the whys and hows and all of that at particular yeah. ages. But at the same time, it kind of brings me back to, you know, parenting is hard, you know, helping to keep kids attention is hard. But as you were describing the foul shot thing, it made me think of in baseball when people say, just throw strikes. I got to tell you, the single (laughs) most annoying thing to hear, and I hate this too, keep your eye on the ball. Like, what what do you think? I'm closing my eye. Like, I know they're, they're just like almost reactionary things that, you know, people say, but it's like, do you have any idea what it's like to stand on a mound? be trying to throw it over the plate and you just can't it's just it's not that easy so i think at times it's important for people to hear like it's such a valuable thing for that you said it's not a matter of effort it could be that hey i got to step back and realize this isn't a motivational thing maybe they just don't know how to do this properly and that's why as a coach have to be willing to adjust well, and that's really hard to do, right? Like, it's a lot easier to assume that it's something about effort because we kind of think we know how to address that. And it also makes it less of our problem, right? If it's like a motivation or a focus or an effort thing, we can put that on the kids. And if it's one about like teaching and learning, like, okay, you know, if I'm watching this picture and I actually don't know what the problem is, what am I going to say, right? If, if my technical eye hasn't developed enough to be able to say, okay, is it his grip? Is it his, you know, bottom half? Is it his rotation? Like, what is it? Then it's just a lot harder and more complicated and more nuanced. And then many coaches sort of have the training to, to be able to diagnose. And I, I think that's another part of it. I can't remember if you and I talked about this last time, but a lot of this is just that coaches don't have training. They're not required to have training in teaching and learning or development or a lot of things that might help this situation. And so they come into coaching sort of in this apprenticeship model of doing to others what was done to them, which sometimes is great and works, but other times it just means you just don't have a lot of tools in your toolbox. Um, And that's what the great thing is, I think, about coach development and coach training is it just gives you a few more tools, like a few new ways to think about every problem and situation you face, you know, and what your role might be in helping, uh, you know, make things get better as opposed to assuming that it's a problem that the kids are having. Wow. You're, you might hurt some feelings with that because you're, you're talking about accountability and having a look in the mirror and it's not easy to do for me at times. And like, (laughs) I make a mistake parenting all the time. You know, I think it's a good thing to tap into in this conversation piece because you're you're really involved with grassroots level and you know recreation sports which gets you know i i don't even like that term like i don't even like saying rec you know it's like it gets such a negative but it's like really that is where everyone for the most part starts at some point you start at that recreation that hey we're just going to bring our kids out and you know at some point it veers off based on skill and all that but most of those coaches are either a guys like myself or yourself or, or young ladies uh-huh. who who may have played and may have not and they want to volunteer and help or it might just be a mom or dad or grandma grandpa aunt and uncle whoever who steps up and wants and they may not have the the sport experience like i can go coach soccer 
And I, I never played soccer, but I would probably, I would be okay at organizing it, but I don't really know how to teach the fundamentals of soccer. So, I, you know, there's a lot of us out there who may be volunteering to coach a sport who don't, how do, you talked about coach training, you talk, what are some yeah. ways in which that you may think it's good for parents? Because I think that may hold back some really great potential youth coaches from wanting to get involved because they're afraid that their lack of experience, you know, they won't be an asset. And I totally think that that's, yeah. that's, that's disheartening. I think your comparison to parenting is a really good one. I think like instead of thinking that the experience that you need to have to be a coach is one about like having the X's and O's, it's really one about like how to relate to kids. And, you know, if a parent is thinking about stepping into this position, a lot of what they need to bring is is the experience of parenting and, you know, how do they want their kid to be treated and how does their kid learn best? And, you know, they probably know that, they can't sit their kids down and give them like a long 30 minute lecture about something and expect that they're going to listen and do it. But somehow, you know, we see coaches do that on the playing field and expect different results. Like people have, I think the innate knowledge, especially if they've been parents, like bring that sense of building relationship and caring for one another and, you know, having a good time the same way that you want to do with your kids. Like, that's really what we need at that level of sport. Like, as you said, you don't know soccer, but you know enough about soccer to help some seven and eight year olds have a great experience playing soccer. Right. Like we always talk about in our programs that what you need to know in coaching, like X's and O's are a really small sliver of that. I went from coaching um, like elite level rowing to coaching Little League Baseball. And um, I feel like I had, you know, 90% of the skills that I needed to be able to do it. My baseball diagnostic skills were not great. And I had to develop, you know, a technical eye for what I was looking at. But like, I could do that better through YouTube than I could learn the sort of basics of how you relate to kids and people and how you structure practice, right? Like, that's the stuff that I that I already knew how to do. So the the technical stuff is easier to learn than the relational stuff, I think. And and I always say, especially especially at the, you know, if you're talking about preventing kids from wanting to drop out, I always say you can grade yourself and I didn't come up with this, but it's really how I how I grade my own performance as a coach is how many kids want to continue to play the sport. And I feel like you can do that by having kids have a great time you know, that you could teach them, you know, the fundamentals and teach them obviously the, the athletic skills, specific stuff according to that sport. But I think what's going to make them want to play again the next year is did they have a good time, right? Obviously they learned, yeah. did they get better? Um, did they improve? Did they feel like they became part of something bigger than themselves? Did they feel like when they got to the ball field or the soccer field or the wrestling, you know, workout room, uh, do they feel like they're going there for a greater purpose and, and positivity? And, you know, if they're having a bad day, it's school or whatever do they get relief coming there i think those are the things as coaches you know we need to think about like it's not all about wins and losses it's about if my kids are coming here with enthusiasm well then all of a sudden i'm i'm i think as a coach all we're doing is trying to create it's like a teacher you're trying to create the best environment possible for your kids to have success and you know depending on how they grasp it the time frame and will dictate, you know, maybe their progression from a skill set or sports specific perspective. But at the end of the day, if you create that environment that allows them to kind of feel free to explore and to, to, to be risky, right? To try things without the fear of, you know, embarrassment of failure. I think that's how us coaches should be critical of our own successes or failures is if we're creating that environment. Do you, what, what are your thoughts on, on that? 100%. I love so many of the words that you just use, you know, like, 
basically you just described psychological safety, right? Kids, you know, being willing to show up and try hard, which definitely means taking risks and failing and knowing that that's going to be okay. And being willing to show up and be like a hundred percent, like authentically themselves and know that that's going to be accepted. And when, when you think about that, you can see where back to the yelling, where that doesn't necessarily overlay with those those kind of goals, with the psychological safety, with this idea of it's okay to take a risk. Because if you're worried that there might be some explosiveness or some reactivity to mistakes, you're not going to be free to problem solve and be creative and try things out, right? Even if the intention of that yelling isn't about limiting you, anything that's fear-based will limit you. And so I definitely do want to say, like, I know a lot of what I said was about, you know, how we would work with kids. But I I still think this applies in the high school and and college years as well. I mean, I think when you and I talked last, I told you, like, I can't tell you how many college student athletes I get into my master's degree program who tell me about sort of emotionally abusive experiences they've had in in college. Things like coaches saying, like, you need to be worried when I stop yelling at you. That's when you need to be worried. And, you know, them being like, oh, okay, yelling's good. Like, I'm supposed to think that's good. That's just like a way to keep a person, kid or adult, in a, like, flight or fight mode all the time, right? Completely anxious. So it's just to say that I think this applies broadly to kids and to um, high school and collegiate athletes as well. When we come back, Julie and I discuss mental health in young athletes and why the best coaches are self-aware. Where we left off, Julie and I were about to talk about creating a safe, inclusive space for young athletes and why communities need to reinvest in accessible youth sports opportunities. So as you as you talk with, you know, college age and and, you know, older, right, or, you know, older than yeah. 18, you know, young adults, right, or borderline, you know, adults, yeah. um, young adults, certainly. Um, mental health is something that is that is on the forefront. Absolutely. You know, people are becoming more vulnerable. And, you know, I applaud a lot of, you know, great athletes and, and professionals that are out there right now kind of not being afraid to share on those things. And I hear yeah. all the time from college coaches, Dr. McCleary, that, you know, more than any other time in their careers, they're having to, you know, have mental health experts or, you know, mental coaches like this whole, it's unlocking this whole other side, self-belief and, and positive self-talk and all of these different things. It's more than ever. Do you think it's, it's from your, I don't know if you have any research based on this. Yeah. Do you think it's just a sign of the times? Do you think it's just that we've been behind the eight ball or do you think it's just someone somewhere, you know, felt the need to talk about it? You know, maybe it's Michael Phelps, mm-hmm. maybe it's Simone Biles, whoever it's opening the floodgates. Or do you think that, you know, that, that coaching or sport has from a youth level become more stress, like literally become more stressful in causing this? I, I think you, you, you had a lot of reasons in there. And I, I sort of think yes to, to all of them. I mean, I'll start with the, the ecosystem. Um, I think, yes, I think there is a lot of evidence that like early specialization and particularly early identification with your sport is something that produces anxiety and depression in the long run, because then when you are injured or you're having difficulties with your sport, your whole identity is threatened, right? It's undermining who you are as a person. And so that that ecosystem piece of the early identification, early specialization, like one sport all the time means that's who you are. And so if who you are is not going well on the court or in the pool or whatever, then that's really like a foundational block of your of your personhood is sort of taken away. And I think that is definitely part of the issue. Um, I think 
probably, like you also said, it's it's always been there. We just haven't talked about it. You know, it's hard to say, again, this sort of like survivor's bias, like maybe some folks who, who couldn't handle, like had mental health issues, were not able to stay in sports and we didn't get to hear from them. And now those folks are able to speak up and get the help they need and stay in sport. And that way, um, it's really great. And I think there are a lot of role models out there. You named Simone Biles and Michael Phelps and, you know, Kevin Love, who are sort of talking about it and giving us all the tools that we need to have conversations with our athletes. And, you know, I think about, um, I do a lot of coach training and mental health comes up a lot as a training, as you said, that coaches really feel like they need. And I think coaches do need to understand sort of what their role is and what they can do and who they can refer to and what resources are available for kids in their schools or in in their communities. But I also do think coaches can think about their own coaching becoming like safer places for kids, both physically and psychologically, and that that part of their role is to make, as, as you described before, make their sport environment, you know, as safe and supportive as it possibly can be. That's a really important role that they can play. And that goes back to, you know, the premise of what we started this with is like, for most kids, that's going to be not yelling. (laughs) Like if we want to kind of create an environment that keeps people feeling good and safe, especially, and I think, you know, I, I skipped over this. I do think this is a generation of kids who have experienced things that most of us can barely fathom. I mean, whether, you know, it's coming out of the pandemic still, um, having grown up with social media, I think all of those things are contributors and we just need to make space for them and their particular needs at this time. I actually, who did I listen to? Um, Tree Beekman, she's, oh, she's at like University of Florida, I think. She talks a lot about culture, but also about Gen Z and she talked about them as a group that are sort of missing relational reps like they've just had less social interactions. And so part of our job as a coach with that, with this generation is to help them get those reps and to help them build relationships with adults and with each other uh, in a way that maybe we haven't had to do before with other generations. Well, I know that my wife and I, like we make our kids call like their grandma and grandpa, their aunts and uncle, like we make you know, because they're so used to just, you know, texting, you know, text, text, text. And we're like, no, you're going to get on the phone. Like, you've right. got to learn how to speak. Um, <laughs> you know, you got to learn. How, whereas, you know, you and I, we were, I was dialing rotary phones. Um, you know, I, I still remember AOL and, you know, the beep and beep. So, I mean, like at times I think about, but it's really not that long ago, but it's like how quickly things. So you're right. All like certainly my kids have all come up and it's what they know. And we're the ones playing catch up. Um in many yeah. ways. So I don't think we take into, I think we, I don't think at times we give enough, probably, uh, I don't want to say sympathy, but, but you know, sp- uh-huh. use the word space to like realize like times have changed and we're the ones who are trying to play catch up and our kids know what they've grown up in. And I'm curious for your thoughts on this. I often see people who are advocates for youth sports and they're trying their best to do work, but they, they wanted to go back to the, I, I, and I'm sorry, it bothers me when I hear people say, we need to go back to Sandlot. And I'm like, what, Sandlot? Like, we don't go back in time. It's a $20 billion industry, and it's forecasted, I guess, yeah, to yeah. like triple. Like, it's not going backwards. Knowing the space we're in now, if you could blow it up, I want to say blow it up. <laughs> if you can use the circumstances that were the ecosystem that we have now and say, okay, Here's what we have. We have businesses. We have all this thing. It's a travel industry. It is not just a sandlot. What would you do 
to make things go in a better direction that you think is a better direction, knowing that we're not going back in time? That's a tough question. I guess I, I would say that it is going to take some sort of um, reinvestment in a community, like looking at access to sport as a public good, right? That like it's something that kids and families deserve and it isn't something that is just for the wealthy. And I think that's what we've gotten away from. And so how can we infuse that back in our understanding of what a community looks like, that it's like a space where kids have opportunity to be on teams and be physically active on their own terms and their own communities. And I think it's going to take schools and parks and rec and, you know, all of our like public agencies to decide that this is a commitment that we got away from that we need to get back to. And I think some of the best examples I see of that are, you know, in Tacoma, Washington, where I'm from, the, the Parks and Rec Department has a relationship with the school district and they do all of their sports programming directly in the elementary schools. So no kid has to travel anywhere, like no one has to drive them. It happens at school. Right. And I know that there are some other I'm blanking on who's doing this right now, but there's been some great investments in like middle school sports, which is where we lose everybody. How can we use like the assets, the fields, the facilities, the spaces that we already have where kids are to bring back the kind of programming? And that's also if we want our elected officials to do it, like we all have to collectively decide that it's something that we want to advocate for. And I think that's where you know, we have to find some kind of common ground and and believe that it's something all kids deserve and um, start that kind of messaging so that we can get the funding and the policies that would make that happen. Because I I don't think as much as I would like to say we want to sort of dismantle the pay to play system. I don't I think you're right. It's not going to like dismantle itself or be dismantled, but we can build other structures that create spaces for everybody. And that's what's gone away, unfortunately. It's, it's almost like youth sports has become, you know, you can look at Major League Baseball and say, well, the minor league system is the, you know, it's the feeding into the pro- professional sports. Well, I'm looking at it now going, well, it starts, you know, the minor leagues are almost starting youth sports. Like, it's like everything yeah, absolutely. is, it's, it's like, it's all about recruiting, right? So you, you're 10 years old, you're trying, what am I going to be able to do so that in two years I could be at this tournament? Because then when I get to high school, yeah. I got to be ranked here to go here. So the the privatization the professionalization the the money that's there it's i mean i, I almost I, I almost i thought about this i'm like i think you're going to need some sort of regulation like some sort of government yep. regulation <laughs> to come in and like put the because it is important it is a physical health issue it is a mental health issue it is yeah. all these things you you so it's almost like we got to slap handcuffs not to say that people can't make a living because there is a need for certain you know, for God's sakes, there's everywhere I look, there's a new, you know, everyone that hears of IMG Academy. Well, now there's like different, there's all these different baseball schools. When I was 14 years old, I went to Cuba with an all-star team to play, you know, to play uh-huh. against Cuban baseball players. And we played like seven games and we got destroyed. Um, it was a great experience, but I remember going to, we went and worked out at each town or city we went to. We played against the local team. There was like 6,000 people at the game. It was crazy, but like, we went and practiced and worked out with the team we played against and their coaches. And they were at a sports school. The, the kids that were there for fencing, they're there for all these different sports, for baseball, for this one, for that one. And I'm like, this is in 94. I'm like, these kids are going to school. But now I feel like here in the States, like that is what you're seeing now. You're, you're seeing schools, uh-huh. high schools, you know, for, for sports specific. Um, 
So it's yeah. not going away. So like, I I'm guess with you on the regulations. I mean, I don't know. I don't usually start there because I think it's sort of a people feel like it's an extreme position. But I think that if if we truly believe that you know access to sport shouldn't be only for the folks who can afford it, then we we need to do something that big and bold, which is to say like we need to regulate youth sports. I I 100% agree with that. I'm not fully sure what it would look like. I think one place to start might be with with coaching and and coach certification. And um, I'm working right now with the Washington Interscholastic um, Activities Association, which is the governing body of sport in in Washington State. And um, they are going to be mandating coach training for all school-based coaches that is focused on youth development and some of the foundational ideas that we've talked about today. And I think that's an amazing start. I think it'll, I think it will be the first um, in the country, the first state in the country to require that type of foundational coach training. A lot, all they all require concussion training, first aid, CPR. But I think that's one place where we can start to, to move things and shift a little bit. It's going to take those bigger organizations to have that same vision that that's the role that they can play. Um, is to help shift the sports culture and shift the sports ecosystem by by training coaches and by creating regulations and legislation that's going to kind of right the ship. I mean, because at the end of the day, you can't go work in finance in most cases without having a license. You can't become a lawyer without having a license. You can't become a doctor without certain qualifications. I mean, half the dang occupations in the United States, you need to have some, there's like some sort of barrier of entry but if I just want to go start a private hitting facility, I can just say it. And if I'm a great salesperson or marketer, I can get people to come there and charge them whatever the hell they're willing to pay me. Um, Absolutely. And and while you're supposed to have people background checked, like that's not well regulated either. So I, I do think it also comes back to a safety issue. I mean, we do have issues with safeguarding kids in sports. There are just too many really unfortunate stories about folks using egregious methods, you know, and abusive methods with kids. And that would be one place that, you know, we could start educating folks about that is, is through some required certification. Um, but, and I do think like that's, again, to just go back to the beginning of our conversation, that's why this sort of yelling thing is so problematic is because it is a slippery slope. And we often do see the coaches that are willing to push the limits around their you know, the way they verbally treat their kids, like those are the ones who, you know, slide on that slippery slope to treating kids in problematic ways, um, you know, in other areas. And so I just think it's like, we, we need to really set like a really hard line that says like, this is the way that kids deserve to be treated. And they have a bill of rights in sports and their rights are to be respected and, you know, treated in a humane way at all in all parts of their sport experience and i think sometimes we forget that and we think we have the answers and the tactics and that you know the way adults are treated should be the same way kids are treated and it's just not true we need to create a different paradigm that puts them at the center and respects you know who they are and their humanity and what their needs are dr julie mccleary i freaking love this this is awesome uh, i can't thank you enough can you tell everyone uh where to find you and and you know maybe be able to find more information on what you do and how you're doing it yeah i mean my twitter which is where i met you is uh at uw coaching lab so uw coaching lab and i think that's the best place to find me but the center i work for is the university of washington center for leadership in athletics 
Um, so you could also check them out. I have some great coach training programs and graduate program um, there. Folks want to learn more about this stuff. So um, I appreciate you, you know, coming back to me. And I think it was pretty cool how we kind of met on Twitter on opposite sides of this issue. And you reached out to learn more and we've been able to have some some good conversations. So I appreciate it. Yeah, we definitely, you know, it was funny because I'm glad you brought that up. And, and I love it because I try, you know, I have learned so much by, I say being an advocate, but, but sharing my, and I think it's so important and where, you know, a lot of adults, quite frankly, um, I lose interest in people's messaging when they don't have an open mind. It's like, it's my way or the highway. And I feel like I am selling myself short to think I have all the answers. I think I'm selling myself short if I think that um, you don't have your own experience and I can't learn from it. And, and quite frankly, like, you know, it's important to have these conversations because at the end of the day, I think we have a way more in common than we don't have in common when it comes particularly to the passion around uh, our kids and playing sports and yeah. youth sports in general. So thank you. And I am so grateful that we were able yeah. to connect again. And I appreciate you bringing that up. I have one, just one more thing I want to add about that, which is like, you mentioned coaches having self-awareness before. And I think that's just what you're speaking to there is like, having self-awareness to like think about, you know, why we hold the views that we hold. And I think self-awareness is just is the key to kind of solving some of these issues around coaching. And I would say that I think a lot of a lot of yelling, a lot of coach behavior is just like lack of emotional regulation and coaches get excited and sports are really exciting. Yeah, they are. You know, they just and sometimes that comes out in a way that is not the most filtered for the audience that they're working with. And like, just to be able to see that. And instead of saying to kids, like, you know, I'm just yelling because I care about you and you're just excited and I'm in the moment. And so that's what I can do. And you should appreciate that. And you should like that. We need to listen to kids and say, well, maybe that, maybe they don't like that. And maybe I could regulate my emotions and like come with a different message, you know, and see if I can like find a different space to coach from that might suit them better. So I think self-awareness is just a really important takeaway message. Great point. Great ending. I just can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing. You really, uh, we're going to do this, but we can spend a lot more time on here um, and we'll definitely do it again. All right. Great. Thanks so much. That's Dr. Julie McCleary, professor at the University of Washington and longtime youth sports advocate. Thanks for listening to the Reform Sports Project podcast. I'm Nick Bonacore, and our goal is to restore a healthy balance and perspective in all areas of sport through education and advocacy. For updates, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or check out our website by searching for the Reform Sports Project.